This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. I've uncovered another radio show I'd like to share with you tonight. It's called Crime Classics. Now, it was created, produced, and directed by radio actor-director Elliot Lewis. The program was a historical true crime series examining crimes and murders from the past. The only continuing character was the host narrator, Thomas Highland, played by Lou Merrill. Highland was introduced by the announcer as a connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Merrill's deadpan portrayal of Highland provides the welcome role of a tongue-in-cheek humor to the proceedings, and Lou Merrill also performed in Lux Radio Theater as a utility support player in nearly every broadcast from 1937 to 1939, notably as Sleepy in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And he also served as an assistant director, handling the crowd scenes during that time. So, let's listen in as we hear the tale of Colonel James Fisk. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland. I'm going to tell you another true crime story. Listen. The sound you hear is that of a man having his right hand hooked. Filed. It's Saturday night in London town, and he wants to be gleaming and presentable. The year is 1739, when a well-sharpened hook in London town was considered prudent. And Captain Rat, that's R-A-T-T, besides being a drunkard, a scoundrel, and a smuggler, was a prudent man. The young man handling the file is named Charles Drew, Jr., and he is performing this intimate little ironmongery because he needs a favor done. Captain Rat can help him out. He can supply the youngster with an alibi. And Junior badly needs one, for he has just shot his father dead. And tonight, my report to you on the shrapnel body of Charles Drew Sr. Crime Classics, a new series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land, from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland. Thank you. 
The year, as I've told you, is 1739. And the place? Long Melford in the county of Suffolk. Long Melford was a small, quiet town near London. And in it, a manor. And in the manor, a high-vaulted room of roaring fire, great shadows, and flying buttresses. Directly beneath the buttress that flew toward the west, two men, father, son, Charles Drew Sr., Jr. Son? Yes, father? The time has come for you and I to have a talk. I'm grateful. There are things vexing me. Perhaps what I have to tell you will answer your vexation. I'm very fortunate. I've tried to be a good father. A most excellent father. There's no one richer than you in Long Melford. Which is what I want to talk with you about. I know. I've drawn my latest will. This. What a gentle and most excellent father I have. Have you ear to what they say of you in the square? No, what do they say? That you are gentle and most excellent. What of the will? I'm leaving everything to your five sisters. And to you sixpence. To lend, to spend, to start your fortune. But, but the last will, the one before this, you left me everything. And only a kind word to my five sisters. Mm. That was when you were eleven. Now you are nineteen. And a good son. To whom good? To you good. Nay, to the cutthroats and smugglers with whom you cousin. It is not so. This is so, I know it. You consort with people of ill fame. And also with Mr. Richardson's housekeeper. <laughs> Shall I explain this of Mr. Richardson's housekeeper to you? Twould be well. She is a most excellent housekeeper, and I wish to employ her for our own household. And this you have been trying to do for the last year? Well, she demands high payment. Our family can afford high payment. But I personally cannot, Father. Not until I inherit your fortune. And which with this new will will never be. Father. I don't scare, son. Wave that gun or... A smattering of intelligence concerning 1739 ballistics. Ammunition was chiefly of two types, round or irregular. The former was manufactured by dropping chunks of molten lead from a great height, and when it reached the vat of water at the bottom of flight, it was round, due to centrifugal forces and gravity. Among men who puttered with this sort of thing, round shot was considered pretty fancy. Mostly, guns were loaded in this era by whatever iron junk was to hand. It should be recorded that Charles Drew, Jr. had stopped at a small junkyard on his way to talk with his dad. This is the reason the coroner found numerous pieces of irregular junk iron in dad's corpse. Let's see what dad's son is up to now. Scene, Ye Old Bunnery, a rundown bake shop on Abernathy Lane. The time, two hours later. Principals? Charles Drew, Jr., and a Mr. Humphrey, Bunbaker. That brings you to ye old bannery, Charlie. I want to know a thing. And that is what? Humphrey, how would you like a hundred pounds? <sighs> you were saying a hundred pounds? 
All you must do is say you killed a man. I killed a man. My hundred pounds, please. You must say you killed my father. I killed your father. My hundred pounds. To the police. Charlie. Two hundred pounds now, and and, two hundred pounds after you've been to the police. You killed your poor old dad, Charlie? With this pistol. Huh? Leave you to be a very rich man? If someone were to go to the police and said he killed my father, he would be rich too. <laughs> With his neck in a gibbet. I would guarantee that the man would be released. Inside of a week, he would be released. There are jailers who would release such a man, persuaded correctly, with enough money. A guarantee, I... I know a guarantee. Write me a confession that you killed your poor dear old dad. I will hide it. I will go to the police and confess the deed. If I'm still in jail in a week, I will tell the jailer where to find your confession. Uh, Wrap me up a half a dozen of your excellent buns, Humphrey. And I will give you 200 pounds, plus the price of them. Thereupon, Humphrey plucked a quill from his favorite goose in the back goose coop, sharpened it, and presented it to Charlie. With it, the lad wrote out his confession, paid up, and left. Humphrey waited for his wife, got permission to leave the shop, stopped at his house for a moment, then walked into the local constabulary and made history with this statement. If you boys are looking for a corpus, try 26 Bloom Street. If you're wondering what his name is, it's Charles Drew Seymour. If you're wondering who did the murder on him, it's me. And my name is Humphrey. The police, upon arriving at the appropriate room at 26 Bloom Street, understood immediately that foul play had been done. One of the constables was assigned to look in on the household of Mr. Humphrey, and there saw the Humphrey children at play at Thistledee-Doo, a game usually played with marbles, but by the Humphrey children played with pieces of iron junk, which latter were of a size that could easily be rammed down the muzzle of a gun. The gun was there, too, under a pillow on Mr. Humphrey's side of the bed. Mrs. Humphrey, who in the meanwhile had returned home, shook her head philosophically when apprised of the situation. It is recorded that Mrs. Humphrey's parents had both been put away as confirmed smugglers, a felony against the Crown. The next day, in jail... Nice of you to visit me, Charlie. Yes. What news do you bring? When am I to be released? I I went to see Sir Roger Firebrace. How is Sir Roger? Dead. Tis a pity, too, for he would have gotten your release in an ounce for a few hundred pounds. Don't forget, laddie, I've got your confession. You've got till Sunday. The youngster, however, knew another man of note, Sir Chauncey Fenwick. Sir Chauncey was compassionate and understood the situation exactly, but unfortunately had just had one of his periodic fallings out with the magistrate's wife. But Sir Chauncey did not send the lad away empty-handed. He suggested an old sea dog named Captain Rat, uh, with two T's. What's the file, Mr. Drew? You'll be missing me. You couldn't be scraping my wrist. I'm very sorry, Captain Rat. Mm -hmm. 
nervous, beat you? I, I travelled here to London to talk to you. Yeah, you see, Sir Fenwick sent you to me. Sir Fenwick took 500 pounds and said he could do nothing with it. You're my last resort, Captain Rat. We bit here, Mr. Drew. Aye. No. What can old Captain Rat do for you? Do you have any influential friends? What be you needing? An alibi. For yourself? For a friend. Aye. Tis always for a friend. What about him? He confesses he killed my father. And he be your friend? By killing my father, he made me rich. I bear him no malice. And for him, you want an alibi. Why? Why not let him rot? Why, Zanny? You, you see, I... You kill your daddy, Zanny. Keep the hook, Captain. You almost stuck me. <laughs> a pardon, young gentleman. An alibi you wanted it. For a friend, eh? Uh... To say what? That my friend is making a mistake. That he is having hallucinations. That he did not kill my father because he was with you the night my father died. And where, Mr. Drew, will that leave you? Well, since one has confessed to the crime, it is doubtful whether I would be charged with it. A sly one. Beant you a sly one, young gentleman. Beant you. Oh. <laughs> I'll travel down to the jail... With you and have a talk with your friend. How's that, eh? Very good. I, uh, <clears throat> I'll need 500 pounds for expenses. Oh, I, uh, yes. Now. Yes. Wasting a Saturday night and all, coming down here to the dungeon speaking to you, Mr. Humphrey. But I don't mind. And you're going to furnish me an alibi, Captain. Uh, this be a strange one. I explained it all to you, Captain. You kill your dad. This one here says he done it. Now the both of you want me to say he couldn't have done it because he was with me. That lad thought it up. He's the bright one, not me. My plan will work. By the time you get Humphrey out of here and the police begin to dig about again, I'll be in Paris. Lost. I will change my name and with my fortune I... Uh, for your fortune, I will do it. I gave you 500 pounds. Ah, a pittance. Your fortune, Mr. Drew. Except what he's promised to me. What about it, lad? I... I know. Taylor! Ah. Pleasant talking to both of you. It's Saturday night, Charlie. What will you do? It's Saturday night, Charlie. I've got your confession hidden away. And tomorrow's Sunday. What will you do? at each other there in the dungeon, the jailed and the young visitor. And the question hung there. What would Charlie do? It's Saturday night, and tomorrow is Sunday. 
will you do, Charlie? You are listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. Tomorrow night, hear the premiere performance of 21st Precinct, a new hard-hitting mystery series revealing the inner workings of the world's largest police force. 21st Precinct, produced by CBS radio team that gave you gangbusters, is a program you'll want to listen for every Tuesday night on most of these same stations. Premiere performance tomorrow night on CBS radio. Now, once again, Thomas Hyland and the second act of Crime Classics and his report to you on the shrapneled body of Charles Drew, Sr. It's a short, dusty road from Long Melford to London. Not only that, but these days it's hard to find. In its day, however, it was remarkable for two things. The brothers Shoes Spooner, Dick and Harry, who embarked on a career of highwomanship on the morn of June 3, 1735, were hung on the eve of that same day from the highest branch of an elm at a fort on Long Melford Road. The other historic feature of Long Melford Road is the fact that on a Sunday morning, a young murderer, Charles Drew Jr., and his lady love... Rode a coach down its ruts. Oh, he's a ranting, roving lad. He is a brisk and a bonny lad. Be tied what may, I will be wed. And follow the boy with the white cockade. Liz. What is it, dearie? Shut up. Everyone's singing that song, dearie. It's the rage. Please, shut up. Oh, duck, what's the matter? You're the cause of it all. What old duck? By killing my father. You wanted a way to have all his money? I told you a way to do. That's all. Yes. Oh, duck, dearie. You'll see when we get to London what a time I'll show you. Make you forget. Since I've killed him, I've done everything wrong. Will you listen to Liz again? Will you? Surely I'll listen, Poodle. Oh, duck. <laughs> Monkey. Will you listen to Liz? Surely. We get to London, we change your name, and you forget about Humphrey. But if I, I don't get him out of jail tonight, he'll show the police my confession. But you'll be in London. Start forgetting about him right now. <laughs> All right. And so they fled to London town, little knowing that they had made a road famous. In London, they located a little-known hideaway called Bonhomme Carter's Thorny Bull Inn on the corner of Asquith and Chiswick. The lad registered under an alias, Thomas Roberts. Liz, however, registered in her own name, Elizabeth Bathall. As this was going on back in Long Melford Jail, where Mr. Humphrey was, there transpired this. In one hour, Barthy, I'm getting out of here. 
You be a fool. How a fool? Where'd you ever have so much money? What fun are you baking, wifey? This fun. The lad's giving you money, all that money, and he's good for more. Aye. All we want. He's a rich one, that's true. We can get more money before you show his confession. How? You said he fled. His Liz told me they were off to London town. You could write him a letter and say as long as he paid you twenty pounds a day, you'd be willing to stay where you are. Twenty pounds a day? That's a robbery. (laughs) (laughs) I will go to London and find Master Drew and present him with the letter. How will you find him? Last year and about of him. London, eh, Bart? London. What of the children? Oh, Mrs. Nickelrod says she will take care of them. And you, alone in London? So Mrs. Humphrey went to London. A few observations about Mrs. Humphrey. Wash away the flour and the excess dough. Put on long sleeves to hide the muscles made prominent from kneading bundo. Comb the hair, exchange shoes for boots, and Gertrude Humphrey was rather uh, presentable. When she went to London, Mrs. Humphrey did all of these things. Plus making a mental note not to laugh too much. Not only because of the horrible sound she made, but also because of the mischievous twitch it brought on, which she could not control. So, off she went to this place, to that, to this pub, to that, asking for a Mr. Drew. I should like to comment here that in 1739, the gin was of an excellent Holland distillation. However, its chemistry had a peculiar reaction with Gertrude Humphrey. Though she fought it, and though she laughed not at the most hilarious joke, including the historically famous one about Lady Mumbly and the Troubadour, the gin caused her to twitch mischievously. This attracted to her London dandies, who plied her with more Holland gin, and who promised her help in finding Mr. Drew, and who never did. But Gertrude never lost sight of her mission, and one night in a pub in Covent Garden... Mister! Mister! What's the present, dearie? Well, now, dearie. I want a gin. Uh, gin for the lady. What's your name, dearie? Gertie. Gertie? Aye. Uh, Is it gin, Gertie? Pick up. Well, now, dearie. Is your name Drew? Is that what you want my name to be? I'm looking for Mr. Drew. Mr. Drew, is there a Mr. Drew? Yes. Oh, now, Gertie, I'm the one who's bought you the gin. Yes, my name is Drew. <laughs> you ain't the Drew I'm looking for. Oh, now, why do you say that? Oh, here they are, lad. Oh, I'm the fellow who's bought her the gin. Here's a guinea, my lad. Find another lady who likes gin. Oh, oh I will, that governor. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Gertie. Oh. Oh, now, now, why do you weep, pretty one? You're 
so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Always cry at beautiful things. Gin for the lady. Now, 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 stop that weeping. Ah, here's your gin. I say, mischievous wink you have. Is that truly your name? Truly, Ladybird, it is. Ladybird, Ladybird. And you were looking for me? My name is Drew, and uh, you shouted for Mr. Drew. So beautiful you are. What do you want of me? I've a letter for a man named Drew. Really? Oh, I want you, David. I really do. Then give it to me. You must turn your back now. Right you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are a conniver, you are. <laughs> His name really was Drew, Timothy Drew. It's one of those coincidences in history which gave rise to the old saw, truth is stranger than fiction, as they say. And he was a curious man, and a proud man, jealous of his name, Drew. He had heard his name mentioned, and he was forced to find out why. He read the letter then and there. He read it again, a little later, out loud, to the police. And my missus told you have gone to London with Liz Bathall. But, Charlie, my lad, you shall pay me twenty pounds a day... Else I will tell that you have murdered your poor daddy. I have your paper, which you confessed you did, right where nobody but me knows where. So when my wife hands you this letter, you better give her money and find a way to keep it, uh, giving it to her, your faithful servant, Mr. Walter Humphrey. Gentlemen, here in London is a man named Charles Drew. He has murdered his father, and he bears the same surname as I. I cannot permit this deed to go unpunished. Even in 1739, the London police were thorough, and, goaded by the enormity of the crime and spurred and accompanied by a man whose name had been besmirched, they combed the alleys, hostelries, pubs, dens. It was late on a moist Thursday morning when Timothy Drew happened into Bonhomme Carter's Thorny Bull Inn on the corner of Asquith and Chiswick. Bonham Carter denied the presence of a Mr. Charles Drew, but affirmed that a Liz Bathal was most certainly a guest there. He directed Timothy to Liz's chambers. Who is it? Open the door. No games, dear. It's too early. Who is it? A representative of the police. Why didn't you say? May I come in? If you be the police, you can do anything, ain't that so? Thank you. I ain't done nothing. Is your name Elizabeth Bathall? It is. Do you know a man named Charles Drew? What's he look like? I don't know. Then how can I tell if I know him? Here, here, what sort do you take me for? There's no one in my closet. Ah. 
What is this young man doing under your bed, madam? Oh, a man? What's he... Quiet, woman. Is your name Charles Drew? I'm talking to you under the bed there. Is your name Charles yes, Drew? Sir. Come out from under there, sir. That's right, sir. My name is Charles Drew, sir. And did you kill your father? It would be a small life living as I have been. Yes. Yes, I killed my father. the original issue of a gazette dated January 22nd, 1740, from which I'd like to read. The melancholy proof that when a man has abandoned all religious principles and has suffered his depraved appetites and passions to govern his reason was shown yesterday when Charles Drew Jr. was hanged in Long Melford. Since the hanging elm on Long Melford Road had recently been demolished to make a keel for the British Navy, a new gibbet was erected. This gibbet was equipped with a new mechanical device, invented by Mr. Douglas Langford of Eastburn. Mr. Langford is to be congratulated. Stay tuned for Challenge of the Yukon next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Sergeant Preston and his dog King in another adventure in the far north in Challenge of the Yukon. Now, as gunshots echo across the windswept, snow-covered reaches of the wild northwest, Quaker Puff Wheat and Quaker Puff Rice, the breakfast cereal shot from guns, present the Challenge of the Yukon. It's Yukon King, swiftest and strongest lead dog of the Northwest, blazing the trail for Sergeant Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police in his relentless pursuit of lawbreakers. On King! On, you huskies! Gold. Gold discovered in the Yukon. A stampede to the Klondike and the wild race for riches. Back to the days of the gold rush. With Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice bringing you the adventures of Sergeant Preston and his wonder dog, Yukon King, as they meet the challenge of the Yukon. Warning, calling all fellas and girls. Listen carefully. Nutrition authorities say... Breakfast should furnish from one quarter to one third of the day's total food requirements. So eat a good breakfast. Eat a better breakfast. Eat a cereal. Yes, you can't go wrong if you eat plenty of cereal, fruit, milk, bread, and butter. So tomorrow, enjoy a bowl full of delicious Quaker puffed wheat or Quaker puffed rice topped with milk or cream and fruit. There's no beating this eaten for taste and swell. What's more, for added health benefits, 
crisp, tender wheat or rice shot from guns furnishes restored natural grain amounts of vitamin B1, niacin, and iron. Yes, and talk about good. Just try them. You'll love to eat Quaker puffed rice and Quaker puffed wheat. It was a bitter cold day when Corporal Delaney of the Northwest Mounted Police pushed two prisoners before him into the small jail at Carson Corners. The Mountie had come a long way that day, and his face was blue with cold, and his eyes heavy from lack of sleep. Zeke, the old jailer, poked up the fire in the big stove as the corporal put the prisoners into the empty cell. I'll have this place hotter than the Dutch oven in a few minutes, corporal, so that you can thaw out. You got some tea on your sled out there. I can heat up some water for you. Thanks, Zeke. Maybe you better make some tea for the prisoners, but I'm going on over the cafe and have an early supper and turn in. Sleep is the only thing I'm interested in. I don't suppose you slept much lately. Having to guard two prisoners all the way from Moose Creek. I was mighty glad to get here, I'll tell you. My job's finished now, though. I'm going back to my station in the morning. Sergeant Preston will pick those men up and take them to Dawson. Oh. Ah, this fire feels good. I sure be glad to see the sergeant. When do you think he'll get here? I don't know exactly, but I imagine he'll get here in two or three days. In the uh, meantime, keep a sharp watch on those two in the cell. They're tricky. You have a lot of trouble with them? That's why I couldn't get any sleep. They tried to escape twice. They know they're going to hang for murder, so they're quite desperate. Uh, don't you worry. I'll watch him. I'll deliver him to Sergeant Preston when he comes. My wife will be glad to hear that the sergeant's coming to town. She likes him and always has him to supper. I know she'd be glad to have you eat with us tonight, Corporal. If you can wait long enough for her to cook it. Now, that's nice of you, Zeke, but I'm afraid I wouldn't make very good company. I'd probably fall asleep in my plate. I'll be getting along now. Well, I might as well walk over with you. I can help you unharness the team and feed them while Joe gets your supper going. I'll bring the prisoners their supper, too. I imagine they're hungry, all right. And I'd welcome some help from my dog team. Come on. As Corporal Delaney and Zeke left the jail, one of the men in the cell rose from the cot in which he'd been sitting. Mike Horton was big and towered over the French-Canadian who stood near the cell door. His big hands covered with red hair. Mike grasped the bars of the door and shook them fiercely. Maybe I can break one of these bars loose. Ah, they're vast too strong, even for you. We gotta get out of here if we want to save our necks. Yeah, we freeze or starve with no supplies. I'd rather take a chance on that than have my neck stretched by a rope. Don't worry. If we get out of here, we'll get supplies. How you get out? That old dodo of a jailer ain't very smart. If he comes too close to these bars and I can get my hands on him, I bet we go free. You hear what Mountie tell him? Say to watch you. Yeah, he said the money that's coming for us will be here in about three days. That gives us a little time for the old man to get careless. He's just got to do it once. Yeah. Well, me, I'm tired. Food and sleep tonight for me, that's all. Yeah, good sleep is what we both need. Some hot food. When that old geezer gives us our dinner, I'm going to be watching him. I'll find out where he carries his keys and how careless he is. And tomorrow night, we'll know just what to do. You think tomorrow night we try to escape? You're with me, ain't you? You try and make a break with me tomorrow night? Yeah, 
I can lose nothing. Starve or freeze or hang. There's no choice. If we get out of here before that other money gets to town, we don't do any of them. We'll get free and get out of the country. <laughs> I got a plan. Tomorrow we plan. Tonight, sleep. The early winter darkness had fallen as Sergeant Preston drove his dog team into town the following evening. As he neared Zeke's cabin close to the edge of town, his big lead dog, King, slowed his pace. And the sergeant chuckled as the dog halted in front of it. Oh, you have to easy now. I thought you'd know where to stop. You want to go in and see Zeke and Molly, don't you? You never forget places that have nice, juicy bones waiting for you. Well, come on. I was going to stop here anyway. Hello, Molly. Why, Sergeant Preston and King. Come on in, boy. We didn't expect you for another day or so. Zeke said you'd probably be here in about three days. And Corporal Delaney got here with the prisoners. Oh, yes, they're safe in jail. Zeke's down there now getting the supper for them. Oh, now take off your parka and sit near the stove and get warm. Thanks, Molly. Oh, King, I'm glad to see you. Made better time than I expected. It's a good thing I did. It's starting to snow. I'd like you to have a heavy storm before morning. You stay and have supper with us. We'll eat just as soon as Zeke gets back. You know, I was hoping you'd ask me. You know very well that you and King don't have to be asked, Sergeant. You're welcome here any time you come to town. Zeke have any trouble with the prisoners? No, none at all. He was worried about them because Corporal Delaney said they were desperate men. So Zeke slept at the jail last night. He said they didn't give him any trouble at all. One of them was even kind of pleasant. Huh? He said he heard them talking about life in the jail because it was warm and they were getting hot food. That may be a way of trying to get Zeke off his guard never thought of that. But if they're sensible, they'd never try escaping. They'd be taking an awful chance. It's so cold. Most prisoners wouldn't leave a warm jail on a night like this, even if the doors are unlocked. But you must remember, these men are going to hang. They might be willing to risk freezing. Uh, Zeke is watching them. He plans to sleep there again tonight, but he's coming home for supper. He takes them their supper from the cafe. It's closer. Zeke can sleep at home tonight. I'll sleep at the jail. Oh, uh, Speaking of supper, I better go out and feed my dogs. You going to leave them here tonight? No, I'll leave them in harness, take them with me. There's a place for them behind the jail. Inside the jail, Mike and Louie waited restlessly for Zeke to return from the cafe with their supper. Louie was nervous, and his hands picked at the blanket covering the cot on which he sat. It's cold, it is bad. With no supply, we freeze. We're going tonight if we get the chance. That money may get here sooner than they expect. And don't worry about supplies. When we set fire to the jail, everyone will come running here. We take what we please from the cabins at the edge of town. Yeah, if everything works as you plan. But maybe no. Well, old Zeke ain't as careful as he was. When he gave us our dinner this noon, I could have grabbed him. But I couldn't risk being seen in daylight. Tonight, they'll be sure we burned up in the jail. They won't even start looking for us. Be sure we're dead along with old Zeke. Quiet. It comes. Well, here's your dinner, boys. Hope it's still warm. I hurried as fast as I could to keep it from freezing solid. It's getting colder. It looks like a storm's blowing up. Uh, thanks, Zeke. I'm getting hungry. Yeah, maybe I can help you, huh? Let go of me. Let go. Yeah, be quiet or I'll break your arms. Let's <laughs> get his keys. Hang on his belt. 
Hurry on, Franco! Pull him closer to the yeah. bars. You can reach him now. Get his gun. No, I, I, I got him. Now, he, he's gone. Yeah, get the door open, hurry. Right. Then let him have it with the foot of the gun. No, no. Hurry, I can't hold him all night. My arms, they'll get you for this. Yeah. You'll freeze. Oh. I'll spill the oil out of the lantern. You get matches out of six parts. We just leave him here like this? Uh, sure, he's unconscious. You'll never know what happened to him. We all burned up together. Here are matches. All right, give them to me. Go behind the cabins toward the end of town. By the time they see this fire starting and start running out of the cabins, we'll be out of the way. Get your park on. Give me mine. Right. This is going to be the cleanest getaway anybody ever thought of. Sergeant Preston had fed his dogs and was sitting beside the stove drinking a cup of hot tea as Molly busied herself with supper. King lay near the door away from the heat of the stove. Molly looked at the old clock on the shelf. Zeke should be home any minute now. Want some more tea, Sergeant? No, thanks, Molly. This warmed me up nicely. What's wrong, King? Maybe hear Zeke come in. I hear something. Listen. Something's happened. I hear people yelling. I'll see what it is. Here's your parka, Sergeant. Don't you go out without it. Thanks, Molly. Look, it's the jail. Jail's on fire. Oh, my heavens, and Zeke with those two murders. I'd better help, Molly. I'll get my coat. Maybe I can help, too. As Sergeant Preston, with King running beside him, approached the burning building, he saw the small group of men outlined against the flames, staring helplessly. Seeking the prisoners, get out. Yeah, seen them. Ned James saw the jail of fire, but the time we got here, we could see there was no use trying to put it out. You mean Zeke might be in there? He must be. And there were two prisoners locked in the cell. I'm going after them. Hey, no. It's too late, Sergeant. That roof's going to fall any minute I've now. I've got to try it. I'll put this muffler over my face. Back, King. Stay here, boy. Do you hear? Down. I'm going to get Zeke. Never get Stay there, boy. He's crazy to go in there. That's the last we'll see of that, Molly. His dog knows it, too. Quiet, old boy. Sergeant gave you orders to stay here. As Sergeant Preston entered the flaming building, the smoke rose around him in blinding clouds. He held his breath and staggered through it, his face protected by the woolen muffler. But the heat seemed to sear his eyes, and water poured from them. His lungs bursting for air, he drove himself forward and heard the ominous crack of a beam of flaming wood above him. It was then that he stumbled over a figure lying on the floor in front of him. The smoke stung his eyes, but he fumbled for Zeke's arm, and bending, lifted the body to his shoulders and lunged toward the door. The burning timbers behind him crashed. Now to continue our story. As the burning timbers behind him crashed, Sergeant Preston staggered and fell with Zeke's body in the snow that was melting from the heat of the fire. Everything seemed to be spinning in mad circles. He had to fight desperately to claim to consciousness. He was only vaguely aware of men who gathered around him, beating at smoldering patches of flame on his park. There's another. Get the fire out before we try to move. Uh, you boys, you take seat. Take it next door. Okay, come ahead. Put some wet snow on that smoldering place. All right, that's a ticket, that does it. Then the Mountie felt cold, clean air in his lungs. His brain stopped spinning. He felt himself carried farther from the fire. Easy now. He opened his eyes. Well, well, you'll be all right, Sergeant. Just take it easy for a few minutes. The fire. You're away from it. You made all right, Sergeant. We sure thought you were a goner. Zeke. Where's Zeke? Zeke's all taken care of. Those are taken to the cafe next door. There goes the room. A few seconds more, it would have been the last of you. The prisoners, the men in that cell. Poor devils. That's the last of them, all right. But you did all you could do, Sergeant. 
How you ever got out is more than I'll understand. Well, hello there, King. Did we have a time holding that dog bag? He almost pulled Jim and me in there after you. It's all right, boy. I'm not hurt. Yes, I better go see what I can do for Zeke. Hey, you need any help, Sergeant? Are you still dizzy? No, I'm all right now. My head's cleared. Zeke's wife, Molly, is in there with him now. She got here just when you started out the door carrying him. Good. Hope Zeke's all right. He must have inhaled a lot of smoke. Oh, he'll come out of it all right. Zeke's a tough old bird. We'll see how he's coming along. While Sergeant Preston made his way to the cafe, Mike and Louie had reached the last cabin on the trail from town. Molly, in her haste, had left the door open, and the light from the oil lamp inside shone in a rectangular patch on the snow as the two men crept slowly from the rear of the cabin. We can take what we need from this cabin, Louie. There's no one here. Door's wide open. We, everyone in town, has gone to the fire. Yeah, it's empty, all right. And look at those shelves in there, loaded with canned stuff. We'll take blankets, too. You better keep watch out here while I collect it, huh? Mike, wait. What's your wrong? Look out there in front. Do you see it? Huh? It's a dog team on a sled. And they're all in harness, ready to go. <laughs> this is the luckiest thing that could have happened to us. Get them turned around while I get supplies out of here. This is our lucky night, all right. Say, look, start the snow. Even our trail will be covered. I get that team turned around. Back in the cafe, Sergeant Preston and the men were giving Zeke artificial respiration. Molly stood weeping beside them. It's no use, Sergeant. You've worked on him for almost an hour. It's no use. We're not giving up yet. Uh, you better let me take over for a while, Sergeant. You're all worn out. All right, Jim. Come on. Sergeant, is he... Do you think There's he... a chance, Molly. But he's so still. He inhaled a lot of smoke, I'm afraid. Can't figure out where he got that blow on the head. Back of his head is bloody as if something hit him. If he were hit by a falling beam, I'd have seen it. He was lying on his face. Maybe you couldn't see it. There was so much smoke. <sighs> Sergeant, look. I think he's coming round. Keep working, Jim. Oh. We've done it, Molly. He's breathing. Oh, thank heaven. Is he coming too, Sergeant? I didn't think there was a chance. I thought he was done for. You boys better go in the other room. He needs all the air there is in here. Thanks for your help. Call us if you need us. Right. We'll be out here. <coughs> all right, Jim. You can stop now. Lift him over on the cot. Is he going to be all right, Sergeant? I think so, Molly. There. What happened? Jail caught on fire, Zeke, and you were overcome by the smoke. And the reason you're alive is because Sergeant Preston rescued you. Jail on fire? Zeke, Zeke, I'm so glad you're alive. Molly. We'd better let him rest now. He's weak. Oh, my head. You must have been hit by a falling timber, Zeke. Your scalp is split open. That's why your head's bandaged. Now, you better lie back and try to sleep for a while. The prisoners. Don't think about it, Zeke. Try to rest. Did, did you get him? Mike and Louie? No, there wasn't time. I barely had time to get you out of the place. The building collapsed. I guess it's all over as far as they're concerned. Don't think about it. Uh, no, no. Try to get some sleep now, Z. But I remember now they they got out. Got out? That's what hurt my head. They they hit me with my gun. You mean they got out of their cell? Oh, dear. Yes, they, they must have They set, set fire. fire to the jail, hoping we'd think they were burned along with you. Guilty murders. They meant to burn you alive. Oh, oh. We'll get them back. Well, they didn't have any supplies. They can't get far. If they did have plenty of time. They could have helped themselves to supplies from any cabin in town. Everybody was at the fire. That's right. You can take care of Zeke alone now, Molly. All he needs is rest and sleep. Yes, Sergeant. I can take care of him, all right. Jim, come with me. We'll have the men search right every cabin in town to see if they're hiding anywhere. Sure, Sergeant. One king. 
I wish King knew who they were. He could follow their scent. Everything they used was burned in the fire. Zeke all right, Sergeant? Did you bring him, too? Zeke's going to be all right, boys. Oh, Never fine. thought he'd make it. Fine. Sure looked like a goner to me. I have a job for all of you right now. The prisoners weren't burned in the fire. They escaped. Hey, what do you mean? They knocked Zeke out and set the jail on fire. Now I want every cabin in town searched for them. They may be hiding here. See if any of you have been robbed of supplies. That way we may be able to follow their trail. It's been snowing hard for the last hour, Sergeant. You won't find any tracks. It'll give us a lead if we can find the cabin where they took supplies. It'll show which direction they were going. I'll be at Zeke's cabin. My dog team's there. If you find anything, report to me there. Come on, Jim. As Sergeant Preston and Jim approached Zeke's cabin, King ran ahead of them through the falling snow. Suddenly, the Maori heard him barking frantically, and Preston hurried to see what the trouble was. What do you think is wrong with him, Sergeant? I don't know, Jim. Can't see a thing. The snow's too thick. What's wrong, fella? I don't see anything. Neither do I. That's just the trouble. My dog team's gone. Your dog team? You mean he was out here in front? Yes, I left him here while I went into Molly's. I intended to sleep at the jail and put them in the shed there, and then the fire started. Well, maybe they just uh, ran away. No, they wouldn't do that. They were tired. I'm afraid they were stolen. You mean by the murderers? Let's go into Molly's cabin, Jim. We'll see what we can find. One King. This was a logical place for them to come. It's the edge of town. They were here, all right. Look at the shelves and the beds. They messed things up. Jim, you have a dog team, haven't you? Well, it's not much compared to yours, but it's the best in town. Would you lend it to me? You know you don't have to ask, Sergeant. But how are you going to trail them? The snow will cover everything. King doesn't know what men we're after, but he knows that team. He can follow their scent. Of course, he never thought of that. And I'm going with you, Sergeant. The temperature's dropping. This storm may be a blizzard by morning. Won't be safe to travel alone. Fine, Jim. Glad to have you. Now, let's get your dog team and some supplies. We'll start tonight. King, following the scent of Sergeant Preston's dog team through the darkness, had to slow down to enable Jim's dog team to keep up with him. Sergeant Preston grew more and more discouraged as he knew that the distance between them and the men they were pursuing was getting greater every moment. Jim's team was no match for his own. At last, they were forced to camp for the rest of the night. And it was late the following morning when King led them to a small cabin near the trail. The blizzard had begun. And the wind swirled the icy snow into their faces like tiny bullets. Do you think they stopped here last night? They must have, but they've gone. No sign of my team. Guess we better stop here for a while and get warm. Oh, you have seen Yeah, the dogs are tired, too. Phew. This blizzard is really kicking up. Come on, King. You better come in with us, boy. There's a little fire left in the stove. Maybe I can keep it going. They must have left here early this morning. Well, there's one thing in our favor. Huh? This blizzard won't help them murders any. It's getting worse every minute. They won't get far. Maybe they'll get lost. Start going around in circles. Plenty of times I'd have been lost in blizzards. It hadn't been for King. When I'm in a spot like that, I just let him take over and he gets me out of it. Uh, I swear I never saw a dog like him. <laughs> Look at him. He's not even tired. My dogs are dropping in their tracks. This is nothing for King. You keep up that pace all day and still be fresh. Couldn't you, fella? Uh, is a dog that's leading your team now uh, reliable? Not very, Jim. He's used to depending on King. He won't be much help in a blizzard. Jim. I have an idea. Yeah? It's a long chance. I'm going to send King after them alone. King? How Mike he... and Louie will be confused in this blizzard. They won't know which is north or south. 
If King could lead the team back here, Mike and Louie wouldn't know the difference. But maybe they're camping someplace, holding in till Blizzard's over. If King brings the dog team back without them, we won't have any trouble catching them tomorrow. Well, I should think you'd be afraid they might shoot him or something. King and I have to take chances like that. It's our job. Come on, King, old boy. Up to you now. I want you to bring the team back here, fella. The team. Understand? Get the dogs, boy. Bring them back to me. After the boy, get the team. On King! Hope he makes it. You better put your dog team back in the woodshed, Jim. Hide the sled. All we have to do now is wait. The blizzard had increased. But Mike and Louie kept going, their heads bent into the wind. At last, Louie protested. I think we're off trail. That lead dog does not know where to go. Got to trust him. They lead us to a cavity somewhere. Can't stop here with no protection. I can't tell whether we're going north or south. Maybe we go round and round in circle. Hey, you hear that? You hear a dog? Listen. We look there. That is big dog. Maybe he's lost. Uh, look at him. He's getting in front of the team. Yeah. He's breaking the trail for him. Maybe he's somebody's lead dog. You think we should harness him? Oh, he's doing all right. Hey, look at the dogs. They're speeding up. Maybe he'll take us to somebody's cabin, eh? I hope so. I cannot go much longer. Mush! Mush! Get along there! It was a few hours later, and Sergeant Preston paced the cabin nervously as he listened to the howling wind outside. Jim lay asleep on the cot. Then suddenly, the Mountie heard the sound he'd been waiting for. Jim! Jim, wake up! That's King! What? What? King's brought the team back. I told you he would. Well, I'll be. You going out there now? No, we'd better wait right here for a minute. If the men are with him, they'll come in. I want you. I'll get him with you. That dog, look out. Let go. Let go. I'll take you. No more gunplay. Take him away. Take him away. Come, King. One guard, boy. King doesn't let anybody pull a gun on me. Close that door, will you, Jim? Right. Stay right here, King, and keep an eye on these two. Belongs to you. That's right. And the dog team you stole, well, King considers that team his. That dog. You crook stole the wrong dog team. And now with King watching you, you won't escape again. King agrees to that. That King dog. Could not been fine. That's right. Thanks to King, this case is closed. In just a moment, Sergeant Preston will give you a preview of Wednesday's program. Discover why Quaker Puffed Wheat and Quaker Puffed Rice win the praise of many a He-Man Hollywood movie star. Try Wheat or Rice Shot from Guns yourself at breakfast tomorrow. These crisp, tender, king-size grains are really swell tasting. And good for you, too. Remember, Quaker Puffed Wheat and Quaker Puffed Rice are never sold in bags or bulk. Always buy the big red and blue package with the smiling Quaker man on the front. That's your guarantee that you're getting the original crisp, fresh Quaker puff wheat and Quaker puff rice. These radio dramas, a feature of the challenge of the Yukon Incorporated, are created and produced by George W. Trendle, directed by Fred Flowerday, and supervised by Charles D. Livingston. The part of Sergeant Preston is played by Paul Sutton. 
For a delicious hot breakfast, eat Quaker Oats. The giant of the cereals is Quaker Oats. Yes, the giant of the cereals is Quaker Oats. Delicious, nutritious, makes you feel ambitious. The giant of the cereals is Quaker Oats. Say, boys and girls, do you want to be a star someday in sports and activities? Then start on good Quaker Oats breakfast tomorrow. Because nourishing oatmeal gives you more growth and endurance than any other whole grain cereal. Still less than one penny a serving. Quaker and Mother's Oats are the same. The Challenge of the Yukon is brought to you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at this same time by Quaker Puff Wheat and Quaker Puff Rice, the breakfast cereal shot from guns. Listen Wednesday when Sergeant Preston and Yukon King meet the challenge of the Yukon in the adventure Bonanza 47. Did you ever hear of a dead man being tried for murder? Well, that happened once up in the Yukon during the days of the gold rush. But that was only one of the unusual angles in this particular case I was following. And there might have been more than one killing if it hadn't been for King. It was he who solved the mystery. Be sure to hear this exciting story Wednesday. Till then, this is J. Michael wishing you goodbye, good luck, and good health from Quaker Puffed Wheat and Quaker Puffed Rice. So long. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's The Life of Riley, followed by Dragnet. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.